This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore, and this is The Breakfast Wrap for Monday, March 13th. Snow will come to an end this morning. Cloudy skies, a few flurries here and there. The high, plus two. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, notorious killers Millard and Smitch are appealing their sentences. Number two, Flair Airlines struggling to restore flights after planes were seized. Number three, the Silicon Valley bank closure gives the finance industry the jitters. Number four, taxpayers give King Charles a horse. And number five, everything everywhere all at once cleans up at the Oscars. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 5.08 on a Monday morning. How you doing so far? I'm back from my trip, which turned into kind of a micro trip, but we don't have to uh, go through all of the gruesome details. All I would say is, because anybody who follows me on Twitter knows that I was having some, uh, some issues, the problem these days, and it's not just my problem, I'm sure you've had this experience, when things go wrong, there's nobody there to tell you what's going to happen, and the means by which you can fix your situation are a slight. And the real issue for me was I was ready to try and figure things out online, but it wasn't working. And when you call the call center, they actually tell you we have a high call volume and hang up on you. So you've got, you know, hundreds of dollars on the line and a schedule to keep and things like, you know, hotel reservations in another city. And you can't even figure out what the solution is going to be. And again, you've probably had this experience where, uh, in my case anyway, um, my flights were rescheduled by a computer. And I'm not kidding. They scheduled me to fly to Montreal, departing Toronto at 10 minutes after midnight Sunday morning, returning to Toronto at 10.30 Sunday morning. So effectively, I think they wanted me to go to Montreal to have breakfast at Trudeau Airport. Anyway, you know what? We got it worked out. And I ended up doing all kinds of crazy things that I'll tell you about, including seeing, you know, these immersive shows. This is the next generation of these uh, immersive shows. And uh, it's coming to Toronto in June. So, you know, it's more than just what did John do in Montreal this weekend. But it was uh, a lot of fun. And especially, you know, the experience whenever you catch up with people you haven't seen in decades. And this dates back to the era where I was a stage actor in Montreal. And to see so many of these artists still succeeding in the business when I was crap and got out is, uh, is a lot of, it's a lot of fun. So speaking of things going wrong in uh, the industry of getting people around, uh, Flare, Flare Airlines seems to have stayed mostly on top of their situation. Four of their planes were seized. They say uh, that this is not an error necessarily, uh, but they may have been late on a payment on a few planes, and the people who lease them decided to you know, lower the hammer. So all of a sudden, Flare, which aspires to be Canada's number three airline apparently, uh, lost four of their planes. They ended up being paralyzed on the runway. And so they had to try to figure out what to do with their clients. 
And judging by the coverage I'm looking at, you know, and this situation may change as we learn more, but it seems they were fairly nimble in trying to figure out how to acquire other planes or how to redirect the planes that they have and try to get people to where they need to be. However, there seemed to be an awful lot of disappointed people who didn't fly on their first day. And you know how March break works, you know, you're out on, on one day, you've got an all-inclusive in all likelihood booked somewhere. And if you don't get there on the first day, then it's just a waste of your money and a waste of your time. And then there's the whole anxiety of trying to figure out if you're going to get home when it's all over. But this is, you know, I, I always say having dealt with Jets Go, which was one of the most sad sack discount airlines ever created in this country, I don't tend to favor discount and charter airlines anymore because once burned, you just don't want to get into that. And we've had situations in Canada where, you know, people have been flown to their all-inclusive resort and then the airline goes out of business and it's like, now what? And then they always call on the government. We bought cheap tickets with a, a nothing airline and we got stranded and we need you to fix this for us. We're going to track down some financial people today to explain this because even I don't have an accurate picture, I have to say, of what the, the um, what collateral damage of this Silicon Valley bank going out of business is. But they actually have a footprint in Canada. So there's a Canadian angle to this. And then average investors are not involved. So average bank users and depositors are not involved in this. It's an investment organization more than anything else. But it is creating reverberations in the financial industry. And the problem with bank troubles is they are contagious. You know, people start to get worried and then they start to run to the bank. And then you got Jimmy Stewart telling you that everything's going to be okay. But that's the, the inherent, you know, banks are a, a tough, tough situation because they loan out more money than they have. And that's fine so long as you continue to hold your deposit there and everybody continues to pay the, their mortgages. But as soon as people take a run at the bank and start to try to get their money out, all of a sudden the whole architecture of it, and I'm being very generous in use of word, the use of the word architecture, but the whole, it all comes collapsing down. So I think by like noon today, we'll know whether or not there's anything else to worry about. However, at the same time, I don't want to sow any fears amongst you because in Canada, your deposits are insured. Now, <laughs> the government would be in some pretty serious trouble if all five of our big banks ended up in trouble. But your deposits are insured. So there is, is no jeopardy, to be perfectly honest, for the average Canadian investor. And then we get to, there's a ton of great debatables today. So we're going to have a really good time on the roundtables, I think. I mean, first of all, I think we're still batting cleanup on the resignation of a conservative MPP from the conservative caucus at Queen's Park over the uh, Chinese me election meddling. And who would have thought in all of this craziness, like for two weeks, we've been yelling and screaming about Chinese meddling in Canadian elections. Who would have thought the first casualty would be a conservative MPP in Ontario? But that's where we are. And then there's the business, and we'll talk about this in just a moment with our friends at CP24. But the RCMP has gifted King Charles III with a horse. And so that's actually 
a taxpayer-funded horse being given to one of the richest guys in the world. And it just strikes me as um, a little odd. I get it. You know, I was always, frankly, I was always happy. We could give a horse. We gave like 13 of them to Queen Elizabeth, but she was another affair altogether. Okay, time to say good morning to News Talk 1010's John Moore. John, happy Monday. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, let's start with this news. Dellen Millard and Mark Schmidt are appealing convictions. This was for a murder case, uh, I think, 10 years ago. This was a notorious murder case. You're absolutely right. Uh, Laura Babcock, whose body has never been recovered, uh, is alleged to, well, not alleged. I mean, it was established in court. They were convicted of this. Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch most famously went for a uh, drive with a guy who they claimed they were going to buy a truck from, murdered him, and then uh, destroyed his body in an incinerator. It was a horrible, horrible uh, series of murders. There was another one, uh, one of their parents, ultimately, who had thought to have been a suicide, ended up uh, being de to be a murder. So the reason for this is both of them were convicted and given um, consecutive sentences, so 50 years and 75 years without parole. Now, owing to a precedent that was set a few years ago with that mosque killing in Quebec City, there is some dispute as to whether or not they would serve concurrent or consecutive sentences. So that all begins today in court. It is expected to go four or five days. Mm. And what's interesting here, I guess, is they're representing themselves so they don't exactly have good lawyers, but at the same time, they have a very firm precedent to argue. Mm, okay, we'll be following that one. Uh, and this one, John, it could be affecting some people's March break, break plans. Fingers crossed that it doesn't, but Flair mm. Airlines says that now four of its aircraft have been seized in a commercial dispute. The seize happened on a th uh, Saturday, and so a whole bunch of people found themselves unable to fly. Flair has been struggling to try and accommodate everybody. They seem to have done a fairly good job over a couple of days. But you're right, this is Mar March break, right? You get one week to go and lie on a beach somewhere, and all of a sudden the airline company you were flying with is not flying. And then I guess there's a question mark about the long-term uh, ability of Flair to be able to get these people back and to continue to offer its service. Okay, staying with seizing, Canadian regulator, uh, Canadian regulator, sorry, I can't get that word right, regulator uh, has now seized assets of their Toronto branch of Silicon Valley Bank, which we know collapsed last week. Silicon Valley Bank's collapse is the second biggest bank's bank collapse ever, and it actually does have a footprint in Canada. This doesn't involve your sort of average day-to-day -day depositors and borrowers. It's mostly an investment bank. But the problem with any bank instability is people start getting the jitters about other banks. So I think we'll know very soon today whether or not this is contagious and whether or not people are starting to worry about bank holdings. But of mm -hmm. course, in Canada, we're insured. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's that's good on our side. Uh, turning to this now, yeah. uh, John, a ceremony on sacred headdress that was stolen inside a vehicle was actually owned by a First Nation chief. Chief Scott McLeod is attending a hockey tournament and his Jeep was stolen and inside was a sacred headdress. He's begging for that to be returned and it's kind of hard, you know, if you're, you've just stolen a vehicle and you turn around and there is an aboriginal headdress in the back seat, I guess you know maybe you've made a mistake. So he's just saying, please just bring it back to the hotel in Mississauga, the Sandman Signature Mississauga Hotel and there will be no penalty, nobody will be arrested for this, but I need to get this thing back. Mm, yeah, let's hope uh, he recovers that. And finally, we always kind of end with either <laughs> baseball or animals lately, John, but a retired RCMP <laughs> horse has been gifted to King Charles III. So some of the superstars might have declined to perform, but I guess gifts are definitely still coming in. 
This is a mayor named Noble, seven-year-old, a veteran of the RCMP's musical ride, has participated in 90 public performances, 50 different locations in Canada, and uh, she's been gifted to King Charles. It's going to be one of those interesting things to talk about on the roundtables today here on News Talk 1010, because it's an, a lovely gesture, mm -hmm. but at the same time, this is a taxpayer-funded horse going to a really rich guy. Hmm. Yeah, and a beautiful horse as well. Wow, okay. Yes. I'm sure this will stir some conversation. Uh, News Talk 1010's John Moore. Catch him from 5.07 to 9 a.m. Have a great show, John. We'll talk with you tomorrow. Take care. And it is a beautiful horse. Absolutely majestic. But if you've ever seen the musical ride, all of their horses are gorgeous. As a matter of fact, I'll be occasionally down at the horse barn on the fairgrounds, and that's where Toronto Police Service keeps their horses. And their horses are also gorgeous. Um, you know, tall and sleek and well-tended. But I do come back to, and if you think I'm being petty, you can always let me know. Or if you think I'm right on the money, you can also let me know at 7-10-10. But I just, I'm so over this whole business of, you know, obeisance to the crown. I get the crown's role in you know, the Canadian governmental system and the judicial system, when you are charged with something, you are charged by the crown. When you argue against something uh, in terms of law, you file your lawsuit against formerly the queen, now the king. Um, there's the governor general and all that stuff. But I simply don't think that Canada is going to completely fall apart if we find our own way in the future without the king of Canada. And to be honest, um, you know, the idea of gifting a horse, and I have no idea, maybe Joe Christiano, you can figure out what this horse is worth. Um, but the fact that we have to give a horse to the King of Canada, who happens to be part of a family that is reported to be worth half a billion dollars, um, I'm, I'm just not in. I'm not fully in on this stuff anymore. And I always said that going for, for a good long time. My position has been that once the Queen was gone, that I was pretty well done with this. I'm not a radical Republican who's about to storm the gates, but I just, the first time I get a quarter in my pocket with Charles's face on it, I'm going to think this is a little weird. And I figure an awful lot of people go to bed before the Oscars are over. A lot of people don't even watch the Oscars. Uh, but a couple of notes. First of all, the best picture was the front runner all along. So if you bet on everything, everywhere, all at once, you would have won. I am thrilled that Michelle Yeoh one as best actress. I only just listened to a 90 minute conversation between her and Mark Marin, and I, I was already in love with Michelle Yeoh, but fell in love with her even more. There's a bunch of Canadian connections. I'm never that big a fan of like, here are the Canadians who won the Grammys last night, the guy who edited a classical concert. Um, but there's some pretty significant Canadian winners. So we'll talk about that um, after we do um, headlines and traffic. And the one thing I will say is, well, first of all, I couldn't be more excited that Jamie Lee Curtis won an Oscar. If you're my age, you grew up watching Jamie Lee Curtis scream her head off in horror movies, but you always knew she was possibly the coolest actress around. And last night they confirmed that. It was absolutely fantastic. And I'll also say that Jimmy Kimmel's opening monologue, I think what I really liked about it was the pace. It just roared along instead of, Here's a joke where I make fun of people and then everybody cringes uncomfortably. He just buzzed through like 10 to 12 minutes of comedy and it was solid. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore.
5.37 on a Monday morning. Did you have the same impression yesterday watching the snow come down? I mean, it was kind of pretty, but that's pretty snow on the 2nd of November, not on the 12th of March. And it was just like, enough already. Stop it. We're done. We need out of this. Uh, and I guess it's just because we've had a series of three storms, and the biggest storm, of course, was what, two weeks ago? It was the biggest storm of the uh, the season. But hopefully we've reached a certain escape velocity in all of this. So just because I'm quite mindful that almost nobody, including myself, watched the Oscars from start to finish last night, and I try to be respectful of all of the many professions and trades and arts that are applied in the cinema business. But, you know, you started with best supporting actor, best supporting actress, and then you got into a bunch of technical stuff. And it's like you go into this donut where, okay, these people are essential to the creation of everything that gives us joy in movie and television, but I don't care. Uh, so... The, the broad strokes, so when you arrive wherever you're going today and you can say, hey, how about them Oscars? One of them would be that uh, Jimmy Kimmel's monologue was good. Another would be Lady Gaga had a sensational performance that absolutely rocked everybody's world. Then you get into Canadian Connections. You got uh, the makeup and hairstyling for The Whale, which were Montreal-based artists. Uh, adapted screenplay for Women Talking, Sarah Polly. That's great. She's a celebrity here in Canada. Um, not so much, I have to say, when people talk about Brendan Fraser winning the Oscar for The Whale and they say, he's a Canadian, don't you know? Yeah, he's a Canadian like the way Jim Carrey's a Canadian. He hasn't lived here for 35 years. Uh, but Best Animated Feature was kind of cool because Guillermo del Toro, actually, I don't know if it's full time, but he lives in Toronto. He's Richard Krause's new best friend. And then the documentary feature Navalny also winning the Oscar and had a Canadian connection. And uh, then just in terms of takeaway moments, aside from Lady Gaga's performance, uh, Kihui Kwan, who was a child actor and then kind of lost the thread of things and then all of a sudden, you know, comes roaring back and wins an Oscar. But he talks about having been a Vietnamese boat person and a refugee as a kid. Thank you. Uh... My mom is 84 years old, and she's at home watching. Mom, I just want an Oscar. My journey started on a boat. I spent a year in a refugee camp, and somehow I ended up here on Hollywood's biggest stage. They say stories like this only happen in the movies. I cannot believe it's happening to me. This. This is the American dream. There you go. Okay, so I was mentioning that uh, one of the promises of a Toronto would-be mayor is just talk radio bait. Now, let's set the table here. I don't want to undermine people running for mayor, but at the same time, I, I find sometimes in the media we, I mean, in the last election cycle, John Tory was going to win. And then they chose the one candidate who seemed to be a very mainstream political figure. I mean, he's a guy who has been in civic office. He served in Bogota and they anointed him as Tory's rival so we could have a horse race, but it wasn't a horse race. It was a horse racing against a cat. And then you get into people who will say, well, you know, Blake Acton, who is running again, 
he was the fourth, he was in fourth place. Yes, he was with 1.6%. I mean, talk about the long tail. However, this is going to get people talking. And I think this is going to be an election campaign because of the sort of compressed nature of it. We, we don't have obvious candidates. The candidates that we have or are going to have are people who thought they had three more years to get ready for this race. So they were going to make, you know, gestures and speeches and outreaches over the next three years in order to position themselves. And now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you got to run now. Go. So they're coming up with ideas. So you got Rob Davis, who has uh, pitched two things so far. One of them is he's not going to change street names in Toronto, and that's going to save $21 million. And then Joe Christiana, what was the other promise from Rob Davis? He had something colorful last week we were talking about. Uh, the Toronto police charges people for, oh, right. yeah, for police reports. Written, written copies of police reports for car thefts. Again, this is as they call it in the business, retail, right? It's uh, like people go, I got it. That's why Rob Ford was so good at what he did because he'd say things like, well, I'm going to cancel the, uh, the the car tax. There we go, done. Here's money in your pocket. Now, cutting taxes is the easiest thing in the world to do. Balancing budgets and offering services and paying for them, not as much. But still, it was a great promise. So here's what Blake Acton is promising. Free TTC, no fares. Now, that is, that's a pretty big offer, and, and it's happened in other cities, Luxembourg and Malta. I'm sure you're very enthusiastic about any policy that's ever been applied in Luxembourg and Malta. I'm surprised they even have transit in Luxembourg. It's like six city blocks, isn't it? Um, it's a lovely idea. It would make the TTC probably too popular. It would certainly be an incredible boon to people of uh, limited means. But it's also unaffordable. I mean, the TTC operating budget is $2.38 billion. And users pay 75% of every single ticket on the TTC. That is the highest rate, certainly in North America, if not in most major cities. Um, you know, cities usually, and, and provinces actually, for example, New York City, the state uh, subsidizes, usually transit the users pay much less than that. But in Toronto, a user pays 75%. And I get it. I know Jerry's listening right now. He's like, why don't they pay 100%? Well, because drivers don't pay 100% of the cost of running the roads. So why should TTC users pay 100%? So he says, I will make the TTC fare free. Uh, he insists this is going to take cars off the road, which is going to make life better for all the other motorists who still want to drive. And it's going to be fantastic for the environment because, of course, fewer cars, less pollution. But it's also, and I guess this is, are we tracking down Blake Acton? Because I, somebody needs to present the business plan for this. I'm always, you know, I'm a policy guy. If you show me that something actually makes sense, then bring it on. But I don't see how this would make sense. And he insists that... Um, money would uh, be saved. For example, take the fare inspectors and put them in charge of security. And yeah, that's great, but how many fare inspectors are there? How much money is that going to save? How close are we going to get to $2.38 billion? Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. I guess it's almost a comfort 
the people have to be reminded who Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch are because we were so preoccupied with their, you know, I hate the word craven, but it was, it was craven. It was calculated. It was uh, bloodthirsty. I mean, they murdered uh, three people. First, there was Laura Babcock and her body has never been found. The thinking is, is that they used an incinerator that would normally be used on a farm to destroy the bodies of two of their victims. The other was Tim Bosma. And Tim Bosma is just a guy trying to sell a truck and two guys show up at the door and they say, we want to take it for a test drive. And of course he goes along because, you know, he doesn't want somebody to steal his truck and they kill him and they destroy his body. And then once these two had been apprehended, Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch, they went back into uh, the suicide of uh, Millard's father, Wayne, and they decided that it was not a suicide, that it was actually a murder. So here's the thing. Uh, Dylan Millard and Smitch were both given life sentences, and they took the parole eligibility period and they made it cumulative or sequential or whatever you want to say. So where they would have got like 25 years, instead, Smitch was ineligible for parole in 50, for 50, Millard for 75. So they would both in all likelihood die behind bars. However, the Supreme Court ruled last year in the case of a man who murdered six people that you actually could not put parole eligibility. You couldn't add it up. It had to be concurrent. So Millard and Smitch now qualify for a shortened sentence, 25 years in prison with no parole. But after that, they could be up for parole. So I, you know what? The, I have a fear that they will probably win this case because if the Supreme Court has set this precedent, then they're going to have to apply it across the board. However, one of the problems would be that Dylan Millard is acting as his own lawyer. And apparently the court has received no written documents. And I'm not sure how the judge is going to look on that when we get to, you know, the actual oral hearings, which are happening today. This will be on the agenda, obviously, at 7.45. And there are a lot of very high-minded ideas about why you allow people the possibility of parole. I mean, Paul Bernardo's never getting parole. However, he goes to parole hearings now, I think it's every two years. And then, you know, the board says no. Um, but the whole idea is there has to be some kind of hope. There ha otherwise, you're going to, you know, murder jail guards and do all kinds of other things. So there has to be something dangling in front of you as the possibility that one day you'll see a light through a window that doesn't have bars on it. So we'll talk about it on the roundtables. Is Aaron here? All right. Aaron Real joins us to talk about another story that uh, is making waves this morning. And this is one of those things we're going to have to wait for the 930 bell on the stock market to know whether or not this is going to be like a pebble in a pond with reverberating waves or if we're done. But the Silicon Valley Bank in the U.S. going out of business is having an impact elsewhere. And Aaron is here to explain. Good morning. Yes. So SVB Signature Bank, Signature Bank is actually a crypto bank, Silicon Valley Bank. They cater to tech startups, venture capital, things of that nature. And late last night, the Fed, Treasury and the FDIC all came in and said, 
we're going to make deposits whole. We can all calm down. Right now, you're seeing futures up 400 points. The market likes this. It was a very stressful weekend, and it was a cap to a very, very stressful weekend. I had been following the story all weekend, but essentially, regulators, they not only took control of SBB on Friday, they then took control of the second bank on Sunday. They announced these emergency measures. They're doing this because they were pretty certain there was going to be a bank run this morning. And what this tells us is that bank runs are not just concentrated to the big banks. This, these are smaller, more regional banks. Yes, they were boutique banks. Yes, they had a lot of money. But the fact that so many people are trying to pull their money, they need they needed to do something in order to make this right and to avoid absolute catastrophes. So they decided to come in and they're going to make all the depositors whole. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the Treasury officials and other senior officials, they said the steps didn't constitute a bailout because stock and bondholders of these two banks won't be protected, just the depositors. We've been hearing this a lot lately, that if it doesn't meet the technical definition for what it is, then it isn't that. Um, It's pretty close to a bailout. Um, They're getting pretty great terms. And critics of this say that the move is essentially going to offer a backdoor in terms of subsidies to banks and investors and management for all failing to properly manage interest rate risk. Because this all happened because the SVB got stuck with bonds that they, U.S. Treasuries that they bought at 2%. The Fed has been raising interest rates. They're now, let's say, 6%. If they bought the bond for $100, they had to sell it for $85. All of these unrealized losses became realized losses when people wanted their money out. And it, it quickly catered the bank, cratered the bank. Okay. And, and Aaron, are we able to, do we have an impression of what kind of clients this bank had? I mean, I know it's it's very tech oriented, but I mean, were these individuals who had, you know, a bank account and a mortgage or are we talking about investments? It's a really good question. So so SVB really did cater to tech and, and it was so heavily invested in tech. And they say that that could have been one of the problems. But then there's contagion to other banks that aren't heavily weighted in tech. But what's even fascinating about this is that the culprit of why this bank went down, it wasn't some exotic derivative and, and risk taking mm-hmm. that, that kind of doomed everyone in 2008. This was a mismatch of deposits to assets, good old fashioned vanilla business of commercial banking. They didn't do that properly. And and that's why people are kind of annoyed by this bailout in the sense that, well, they didn't manage their risk properly. They they thought that interest rates would stay low because they had for the past decade, but they didn't. And they went up and then they got caught holding the bag. But yes, this is heavily sectored around tech startups. And and obviously we know that the tech sector got hit recently as well. Um, We've seen a lot of layoffs there and interest rates are really, everyone's pulling back on tech, which boomed so much during the pandemic. So when you see a concentration in a sector that a bank is heavily invested in, obviously that bank is going to be impacted by that. But the contagion to other banks is truly what they were most scared of, the Fed and the Treasury, which is why they saved this particular little bank. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you. Have a great day. Aaron Rayel, NBC News National Radio Correspondent. And yeah, as Aaron was saying, she didn't use the phrase, but this once again takes the notion of moral hazard off the table. The idea of moral hazard is if you screw up in finance, you are the victim. And as we learned in 2008, 2009, government just walks in and bails everybody out and Wall Street just walks on. 
That's The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.